Hello, my name is Paddy Butler and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. This week, Madeleine Dunnigan curates the next Liberia Room Salon on magic with guests Shai Charles, poet Nisha Ramea and performance artist Joseph Morgan Schofield. So that's coming up in a sec, but let's have a look at some of the incredible stuff out there on this subject because a lot of writers such as Otessa Mushveg and Siri Hustved have explored this in their fictional work, most notably in My Year of Rest and Relaxation. In Waking the Witch, Pam Grossman explores everything related to what she describes as a vessel that contains our conflicting feelings about female power. Now, she's pretty much the doyen of this world in New York, so it'd be well worth exploring that. Thomas Waters' Cursed Britain, a history of witchcraft and black magic in modern times, looks absolutely fascinating and has been just published by Yale. A hefty tome by any standards, but um, I'll be digging into that for sure. And then there's Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melkor. Now, I just got this in the post from our friends at Fitzgerald Editions. And for English audiences, this is a new and exceptional talent from Mexico, writing on superstition, poverty and violence. And it comes with some serious endorsements on the back cover. Also from the same imprint, An Apartment on Uranus by Paul B. Prichado looks at Uranism, coined in 1864 by the writer Karl Heinrich Ulrichs to define the third sex and the rights of those who love differently. Now moving slightly away from the magic, but not entirely, Blue Mythologies, Reflections on a Colour, really looks awesome. And P.D. Smith writes an excellent little review in The Guardian, quoting marvellously from the book on the paradoxical nature of the colour. Blue is the purity of the Virgin Mary, yet blue names a movie as obscene. Blue is the scattered light of the sky and the sea, Van Gogh's irises, the eternally elusive blue flower of novalis and romanticism. So there you go, quite extraordinary. And as you can hear, or as you can tell, really delves into the uh, many-sided nature of, of that colour. But now let's join Madeline Dunnigan and guests for this episode of The Liberia Room. Today we're going to be talking about magic. Feared and fetishized, magic has traditionally offered a powerful alternative to rigidly followed societal conventions. But as it becomes ever more popular, its role is also changing. What then is magic in its various forms? Can we define it and why do we need it? With me are poet Nisha Ramaya, tarot reader Shai Charles and performance artist Joseph Morgan Schofield. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, firstly, could each of you just tell me what magic mean, means to you and how it plays out in your day-to-day, -day, both your practice and your everyday life? Um, so I think about magic mostly in relation to poetry, um, starting with maybe thinking about poetry as like for the, the kind of uh, old um, cliched definition of poetry is the the right words in the right order um which i think is like also a definition for spells and it's about um putting words in the right order to try and make something happen in the world so i always think about poetry as as that as like an active 
force of some kind of transformation or multiple kinds of transformation at different levels. And so to me, that's what's magical about it. And the way that poetry um, contains and holds on to ambiguities and the unknowable and, and mystery. Um, and as soon as you try to take it apart or analyze it or find out all of its answers and secrets, you sort of killed it. And I think that's about magic too. Thank you. That was beautiful and very articulate. And I feel like ties quite nicely into Joseph. Yeah. Um, I think also about this, 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 I, I never put it quite like that, but this idea of um, doing of the right words in the right order. And I think uh, my performance practice is, um, is kind of uh, ritualistic in, it, in its form it tries to take. And I understand, um, and I guess I'm kind of more interested in ritual than magic in that, in, in, in that sense, but um, I kind of understand ritual then as a technology um, through which a kind of transformation might be attempted. Um, so I'm really interested in the ways that um, performance, and particularly the, uh, the embodied live experience of performance, um, can be used to um, to attempt to access or, or to to um, to claim the potentials um, for transformation, um, be that um, personal, emotional, um, spiritual, cultural, uh, big or small, micro or macro. My uh, my kind of journey with this stuff started with um, with uh, with an experience, a uh, kind of sustained experience of grief that I couldn't really access. Um, uh, at all and, I, and uh, you know for whatever reasons of, of having a, uh, a disaffected psyche or living in an alienated society and um, it wasn't until I sort of realized that, uh, that do it through doing these kind of like embodied um, performances one could uh, one could access those those feelings in a different way um, and attempt to to shift them or to transform them not in a not in a sense of like um, a kind of like healing end goal where the thing is resolved and and you never feel it again but that actually through doing this kind of action this kind of ritual you might um you might find a way back to life find a way home or find a way to the future so um that's what i, I began seeking that for myself um and and now i'm kind of more interested in, in the in the communal exchange or the communal possibility um of those kind of practices thank you thanks shy what is magic to me? Um, I suppose it has some similarities with what's been said insofar as it might not be so much about words because often it might be actually fairly silent, but in terms of kind of like the mystery of, you know, kind of like manipulating something that's unknown until you have a greater understanding of it. And contrary wise, you know, it's also not so much about performance because it's, it's not only silent, but for me also sometimes for the most part private. Um, but I guess um, I'd say that magic is, for me, the idea that you can um, affect your surroundings or yourself, in fact, um, in kind of subtle ways that don't, that kind of um, defy empiricism or, or at least elude kind of like an evidence-based idea of, of, of cause and effect. Um, and in terms of the day-to-day -day and what that might actually be like, uh, I think um, witches and pagans and all of those sorts of people have started recently to talk a lot about magical thinking. I'm not, I'm, I'm, it's not a new idea. I'm, I'm just not sure what it would have been called before. And I think that that probably comes into play for, I'm not speaking on other people's behalf, but the idea that, um, you know, 
if you see things in a magical way, then that kind of like has an impact on how they perhaps play out um, the behaviors that you might adopt. And I think that can be not simple in a derogatory way, but it could be something quite simple to do with like meditation or setting intentions or a lot of those kind of like almost quite new new age ways of thinking, which are actually very common, are an uncomplicated type of magical thinking, I would say. Um, but then you can apply a, a system or a structure, um, you know, to do with, I guess, just the correspondences of kind of like the Western tradition where like this color means that and is governed by this planet and that herb means that and is governed, you know, and, and then before you know it, you might be choosing an hour of the day to, to take a particular action or choosing a, I don't know, a, t a type of herbal tea because of something that you've decided it, it could, um, affect, um, and then there's it kind of, I guess it kind of beca could become more and more complicated until you're doing spell work or, or ritual or whatever. But um, for for the most part, I'm a bit of an armchair occultist and don't actually do a great deal. I just consume <laughs> a lot of information about um, about magic and the history of magical thinking um, and that sort of thing. That is totally fine. I'm definitely <laughs> a kind of 10-year-old wannabe magical witch. So, you know, I'm kind of I'm a magical tourist. Um, <laughs> and I, I really like this idea of intention, which I think we can pick up on later because I think it feeds into a lot of what um, everyone's doing. But let's go back a bit. And Shai, could you give us a little background on the traditions of witchcraft um, from which you draw which your learning has come from are you practicing wicca or mm, sort, of. sort of i practice witchcraft and a lot of what we have inherited as an understanding of witchcraft as westerners and as people of a particular generation it we owe it to wicca but i am a little bit kind of queasy about wicca in some respects so I think I've probably gone through a process that a lot of people have where you um, kind of get these canonical Wiccan texts and um, and you devour them and you think that that's kind of an orthodox and you understand it and you love it. And then you kind of look at the background of these people and how it came about and you decide that it's in some ways quite inauthentic. And then you decide that it doesn't matter and you kind of make your own way and you've kind of learnt a little magical system that's actually just borrows from everywhere. So to go into the history of it, I, which I could do in a minute, um, mm. you know, I've made an informal study of this and I'm, there are so many people who know so much more about it than I do. Um, but Wicca is just a real patchwork of different types of magical thought and occult traditions. You know, in a way, it's really fabulous. And I've also never practiced it in the way that it was intended, which is as part of a coven. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying a moment ago about kind of the privacy of magic or more simple types of magic or folk magic or whatever it might be. It's very different to like marking all of these uh, occasions and lunar cycles throughout the year as part of an established kind of like group of people who have to use magic as a way to overcome difference and um, powerful, you know, that's a bit more ceremonial and I don't know, I feel like I'm a bit off piece now, but... <laughs> But you do, you are a tarot reader. I am a tarot reader and I guess a witch of sorts. I would say probably not a Wiccan, but the short answer is that like most people who are witches, I suppose, might owe some of their practice to Wicca, um, kind of depending on where they're from and who they are and things. But then witch is quite a complicated word too that you, I don't think we can always throw around because someone from another culture, you might say that they're a witch because of the way that they use something that seems like magic, but to them, 
you know, which can still, it doesn't always translate, does it? And it can be something that's very dark and that people really shirk. Even, you know, um, uh, oh, I forget her name. I forget her last, Amber Khan, the astrologer, there's an astrologer called Amber Khan, who's so magical, um, has such an incredible mind. She's an astrologer and a tarot reader, and someone who can definitely kind of think something and bring it about, make, make things happen in a magical way. Um, and sh she, would, she would say all of that about herself, but she wouldn't say that she was a witch because of her um, kind of like, I guess, Muslim family background and, and, and her belief in a much darker side to what all of that can mean. So... I think we ought to sometimes think about who's a witch and who isn't. And, you know, there's such a kind of um, people who are millennial and younger and remember the craft fondly and all of that sort of thing think just being a witch is really radical and cool and, and anyone who's an empowered woman is a witch. And, and that's kind of all grand, but, like, there's got to be some perimeters to that, I think, as well, when it comes to labelling other people or deciding what other people are. Completely. And, and for the... Um for the pedestrian listener, yes. would you mind outlining what tarot is and how you came to um, oh, yes. being a tarot reader? So tarot um, has a bit to do with witchcraft and occultism, but can exist, I think, very much by itself um, as a practice. Um, it's a divinatory system, so it, uh, it's a type of, if you like, fortune telling. Um, but I think, it, like everything magical, it's somewhere on a spectrum where you can take quite a kind of therapeutic or psychological or social like view of it and be like it only works because of it forces people to participate in analyzing symbols or it forces people to look at who they really are or it just poses questions that are interesting and that can be it doesn't have to have even a hint of anything supernatural about it all the way up to like a very traditional um you know eldritch situation where you're looking at something that is somehow being manipulated by something unseen and, and has like a really uncanny truth to it and um somewhere between those two i would put myself somewhere in the middle possibly airing actually more on the on the kind of like traditional side um it's just a set of cards 98 cards that have been around since the late 1400s and uh that were only used for fortune telling um perhaps around the 17 or 1800s so they existed for a long time as a game um, they actually are not so old as ordinary playing cards, which are cheaper to make or were cheaper to make because they didn't involve so much illustration and there were slightly more tarot cards than there are playing cards. So I think it would be a question of status. Richer people, I think, in Italy in particular, would use tarot as an ornament and for games. Um, Wasn't it used for gambling as yeah, well? I, well I, I, yeah, well, I guess in the same way that playing yeah. cards, you can play a game and then if you want to make it interesting, yeah, <laughs> you, you can. Yeah, just chucking money. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's now thought of as something very ooky spooky. And, um, and yeah, and so I became interested in it. I was, I've been interested in everything like this since I can remember. But I, I kind of got some tarot cards and started using them when I was perhaps 10 or 11. And um, this was encouraged by some members of my family and discouraged by others. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that I was taught how to do it by my nan, because I think that would be a bit romanticizing what happened. And, and I think people who are interested in magic should be guarded against saying that they learn things off their grandmother, because that's very like that's kind of like a bit of a cliche in some right. circles. But she certainly like knew a bit of this and that. And um and then, yeah, they are time, pretty so wise. This is it. To be fair, <laughs> yeah, it comes I from mean, somewhere. No yeah. smoke without fire. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to 
move slightly sideways um, talking about the mythology of magic and different mythologies that feed into um, each of your works. Nisha, I wondered if you could talk about the various mythologies that coalesce in your book, States of the Body Produced by Love, um, and in particular, Tantra, mm. is that pronounced? Yeah, uh, Tantra. Tan- tantra. Um, yeah, well, I I started off by, um, I think, just sort of following various goddesses um, that I was um, finding when I started just um, doing some very curse-free research. And I kept kind of going after the weirder goddesses, mm-hmm. the ones who um, were very bloodthirsty or um, sort of gory in some other way, or the ones who were kind of different colors like the green ones because <laughs> you don't get that many green goddesses in hindu traditions you get loads in buddhism um so i started following kind of goddesses that had any sort of um anything sort of slightly strange about them that i didn't recognize from my more conventional um mainstream hindu upbringing and it's funny you mentioned grandmothers because i mean there's all sorts of cliches related to grandmothers and um diaspora <laughs> communities um but my grandmother was the sort of religious member of the household, but practiced a very conventional mainstream Hindu um, um, ritual tradition. And and I was not at all interested in the gods that she prayed to, who were, well, all men and also all the kind of more like warlord type gods. Or I was interested in the the ones, yeah, the other ones. <laughs> um, and the one that f- the frames mm. the book is... Um, historically associated with widow burning. Am I right in saying that? Um, So what some of the goddesses are, the one who that frames the book is Chinamasta, who is um, she who cuts off her own head to feed herself and her loved ones. So in her iconography, um, she's holding her decapitated head on a plate and three streams of blood shoot out of her neck. Um, and two streams go into the mouths of her companions, and then one stream goes into her own, the mouth of her, on her, her decapitated head. Um, which is the beautiful cover of the book. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is the cover of the book. Um, but one of, there's a group of goddesses called the Mahavidyas, who are tantric Hindu goddesses, um, but some of the goddesses are also um, associated with Buddhist traditions, um, and they are the great goddesses of wisdom, and um, yeah, one of the goddesses in there, the Humavati, is she who rises from the smoke of the widow's funeral pyre. Mm. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of like goddesses that are sort of um, symbolic or allegorical um, retellings of what women's real experiences were like in, in India or in South Asia um, that are kind of meant to be more empowering or suggest other, like suggest alternatives to the kind of the path of just um, marriage and death. And is this something that resonates with you, Joseph, a, a retelling of myth, a taking a myth and exploding it? I think it relates maybe to what we were talking about Icarus and your new work earlier. For sure, yeah. I think um, uh, so. my background is that I didn't really kind of come from any, any. Uh, I think we went to the Church of England like once once a, once a month or something for a couple of years. And, and um, uh and I think it's interesting to think about the ways and, and, and kind of feeding into this idea of like why magic now, it's like it's interesting to think about the ways in which um, the particular like context that we live in is kind of um, mysticism and, and myth and magic and ritual have all been deadened and, and, and uh, we're 
I think lots of people are a lot worse, more worse off for that. Um, but yeah, for sure, I'm, I'm really interested in, in, in what and how myths construct a society um, and, and what we what grows out of them, but, uh, but, but more so in how they might guide us going forward. So um, yeah, in, in, a, in a project that I'm just, the performance work that I'm just beginning to think about, which is called um, With Bare Feet Touching the Sky I Yearn, um, I sort of take the the old Icarus mythology, which is um, a kind of classical uh, myth about a, a youth who flies too close to the sun, um, and um, sort of taking a sledgehammer to that. I, I'm, I'm interested in what happens when you you shatter these things apart and how you might remix them or reassemble them into new forms, and um, and and what you might learn from doing that. So it's kind of not really. Um, it's not really, I guess, about kind of like uh, remembering or reclaiming a particular um, lost cultural tradition, because that's a, that's a classical Greek myth. It's not something that I have a, um, a particular uh, affinity for or claim to. But I do think there's something interesting in these archetypes that can be that can be used and brought forth um, to the, this, with this work. There's kind of a, um, a material process um, which, where wax and heat and, um, and ideas of falling and leaping and flying and breaking are involved. Um, but out of that, I'm really kind of interested in this idea of the, of the future and the different designs or desires that we have for it. So um, this figure or this myth um, becomes a potent lens through which to kind of consider various queer designs on the future um, and uh, and how we might get there, I suppose. <laughs> um, one of the definitions you give in your book, Misha, of Tantra um, is a spell, oath, or ordeal, chief remedy, happiness, which there's quite a few contradictions there. Um, and I wanted to explore this idea of contradiction within magic um, in your poetry, in your performance, and also when you're reading someone's cards as a tarot reader, and how each of you negotiate contradiction. Is contradiction inherent to a magical experience? Um, yeah, well... I mean, that's a great question. And like, that was definitely one of the things that drew me to Tantra and some of the, and the goddesses. And, um, but I think that I started um, maybe, because initially it was contradiction or confusion or a question. And then I think it became um, something more like coexisting or codepending indifference. Um, so, and that being the nature of everything as well. So like I, the book is called States of the Body Produced by Love. And like sometimes people have said, oh, that sounds like a sort of romantic title, but actually it's about um, the the many different um, states are produced by love, which includes uh, violence and death and that love and death or love and violence are really not separate, um, that do coexist and are codependent in all sorts of ways. And that's part of like not sent being sentimental or kind of not glossing over some of the complications or um, or the the cultural specificities. But yeah, I think so. Rather than yeah, it's just it's it's always the state of relation and difference, um, and maybe trying to do more work to perceive them as they already are, um, rather than um, feeling like stuck at particular obstacles. Yeah, that makes sense. rather than. Um giving into an idea that they're binary. Yeah, that right, exactly. Things can coexist in, in, in one organism or body. And I feel like that's kind of realised in the layout of the tarot cards, that things co like multiple 
um, readings coexist in one place or I don't know yeah it's it's certainly the case that I guess um kind of universally or globally there are multiple readings of each of the 78 cards which would have uh, a different interpretation whether they're upright or reversed and a different rep um a different interpretation depending on the surrounding cards so there's almost I mean I think there's an infinite there's a, a real multiplicity about about tarot and and kind of what it could mean um but I don't see actually that there's a great deal of contradiction um in uh tarot being read kind of confidently by by one person to another with with an earnest question um that there, I mean, there could be lots of kind of minor contradictions throughout a reading in terms of maybe the querent saying, oh, well, actually, I think this or actually, I think that. And, you know, sometimes you could come to uh, a unison or an, an agreement around kind of uh, what you think is the situation or what you think might um, come about for somebody. Um, and uh, yeah, but that's quite that. I mean, that just involves two two people kind of like having a conversation about one of the, the life of one of them. Uh, and so it, I guess there's something quite inherently contradictory in that or or I guess there's a lot of inherent potential for, you know, contradiction, because most readings also start with like a look at the past um, so, which is not often focused on when people think about fortune telling um and that kind of has like lots of purpose it's kind of like part of the storytelling if someone asks a question what, you know when am i going to get married when am i going to get a new job like what's going to happen to my family when this happens or you know whatever it might be should i move away should i do this or that you usually start with the past so that you can understand you know the motivations or, or the context and that's for the most part where people are kind of like oh my gosh that's so true how do you know blah 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 for the future you can't prove you can't prove yourself or you can't really gain much ground with them because they don't know either um but if they're a regular client or a friend you will hear about kind of like the way in which the reading uh made it came to make sense um so in terms of there being something contradictory about it i think not always or you know it can it can be ironed out and it's kind of like a uh an effort of partnership perhaps um there could be there could be tons of contradictions in terms of what people have kept held back and and not spoken up about i guess in my career as a tarot reader i could have got so much wrong that people are too polite or too shy or just too not interested to to point out to me um well, also, that's a question of what narratives you present yourself. And we Quite. Present different and my interpretation, it, you know, if they're, I mean, there are different types of sitters. So if someone has said, oh, just to do whatever, tell me what's what's going to happen, you know, and they haven't asked a very interesting question or they haven't engaged particularly, then the interpretation will be weaker because I know less about them. Uh, and that's fine because they might be interested to just see what you can come up with as part of a blank canvas and they're almost putting an idea to the test and they might be quite skeptical as people and that's that's kind of fine and often those people will actually kind of like be the most sparked or interested by kind of the insights of tarot because they have they're starting from zero but really i think it ought to be about someone saying giving you something to work with and that mm. you know and then and then you can have a then you can contradict each other if you like until until maybe there's some consensus or something productive um but it really it, yeah it depends so much on the people involved it's a very peopley practice <laughs> yes um this might be a good moment for joseph for you to tell us a bit about future ritual because before you tell us 
maybe how contradiction works within it. Um, and I, I wanted to know what, I mean, what is Future Ritual, but also what it developed in response to. Um, and it'd be great if you could give us a bit of detail about some performances and pieces. Um, so Future Ritual is uh, is a kind of artist initiative that um, that uh, that I that I do, um, <clears throat> and it's essentially it takes the form of um, of a kind of roving or itinerant series of performance art events um, that that take place in borrowed spaces that we kind of temporarily inhabit and activate in all kinds of ways, um, and it's. Um, it's a it's a research project essentially, and at the heart of it is this question of what is the there's a there's a long history and tradition of ritual practice within um, performance culture and within queer culture, and I guess the project emerges um, out of a out of a, an interest in what is the the use place and function of ritual in in contemporary queer and performance cultures because um, uh, whilst there has been a huge spike in interest. Um, in the last five or so years in these kinds of practices, um, like Shai was saying about kind of a, all sort of the, the sort of millennial, everyone's a witch um, type thing. I think you can, um, which is wonderful in some senses, but but I also agree with you about this kind of uh, need for for rigor and care around these around these kinds of um, ideas. But but really tracing a history and seeing what these things, what these practices are doing now, how artists are using them, um, and how they might be used and brought to bear on the question of the future. Um, I guess I'm quite old-fashioned in some senses, uh, or or out, out of fashion in that I kind of um, I'm really invested in this idea of of kind of of art as a sa as a sacred calling in a way, and that doesn't mean that an artist is any more special than anyone else. It's not about um, kind of being being the priest in the cathedral and and you're you're kind of above the commons, but actually. Um, that, that there is a use and a function for for art making or for poetry um in in cultural that there might be so um future ritual uh, we do the research through inviting artists to to present performances and pre present artworks and then the works are um reflected back by the audience who come to watch them and by um, by kind of critical reflection through commissioned responses and um interviews and that sort of thing and it emerged in two about two years ago um in response to uh, a kind of growing awareness that um, occultist practice was being co-opted and appropriated by the online communities of the far right. Um, so in the lead up to the Donald Trump election, there was all this kind of stuff about um, uh, right wing communities online or far right communities online um, doing this thing called meme magic, where they have this this meme of um, Pepe the Frog, who's a, a frog, an illustration of a frog. And they thought if they replicated this enough times that um, Donald Trump would be elected and, and this kind of... Um, thing was was uh was happening all over and there's also a long there's also a long tradition of far-right occultist practices like the, the nazis were obsessed with finding mm. um mystical weapons um to win the war so this isn't a new thing either um but we were interested and knowing that there is this kind of history and uh, of, of queer and um and uh, performance related ritual practice and magical thinking we were interested to see um how artists would respond to that kind of provocation now knowing that that work was already out there um and uh, really to kind of contest the appropriation of these practices and to stake a claim to the importance of them being carried out live and in the flesh and unmediated by the screen. Um, and yeah, you, you said ask for some examples, right? So um, I feel like I've just said a lot, but uh, briefly, I guess, um, some of the wonderful um, things that have happened is that um, in a basement in Dalston, an artist called Laura Burns um, 
brought uh, some stones, some rocks, really huge, huge rock stones that she'd gathered from a river um, near the in the in the moorland in the north where she grew up, um, and did uh, uh, invited people to hold the rocks as they were washed and um, covered with powder and ash and, and uh, kind of did this improvised. Um, speaking performance uh, returning um returning a, a figure of a hag the kind of grandmother of the land who'd been ripped from ripped from the land in which her family were from um uh, to it a kind of visualization um <clears throat> or i think of the art of um someone like martin o'brien whose uh, work we screened at an event in the in the summer um who uh whose work deals with illness and sickness and disability, but also kind of legacy and a ritual that he'd carried out in a church in Ipswich, um, where he uh, in some ways was transubstantiated into the body of, a, of an artist uh, who had a similar condition to him and who had died years earlier, and where he carried on this, this living legacy of, um, of survival and sickness um, through his body. And there was a kind of deeply move, um, moving um, performance. Uh, and I guess this thing about contradiction, I guess I'm really invested in it also because yeah. um, I love contradiction because it speaks to the complexity of, of, of human, of the human experience that we are all um, tender and brutal uh, and, and uh, we can do care and we can do violence. And I think in the kinds of performances that I'm particularly interested in, there's always a tension between the sacred and the holy and the abject. Um, so, you know, piss, shit, blood and cum and those two things being together. Like the four elements. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the, the questions that's kind of holding this whole discussion together or, or should be is what role does magic in its various forms play today, particularly in a world where we've touched upon it like very lightly, but um, magical practices or the kind of signifiers of magic are becoming more mainstream. And um, they're also being co-opted by far right far left um what for each of you what it, what role does magic play today and how is it still relevant i mean i feel like i i want to start with suspicion and cynicism <laughs> and paranoia because although i i mean i think that there are like many positive things that we could say and, and i think have already been said i i do feel wary i'm drawn to certain things certain magical and mystical traditions but i'm also extremely worried about who else is drawn to those same traditions and like you mentioned like things you know the kind of um histories relating to nazism and like it's the same with tantra like um fascist philosopher julius evola was really interested in eastern philosophies and in tantra and um related to ideas about collective unconscious and so on and i find that terrifying so i kind of want to know i want to kind of actually interrogate that feeling of being drawn to magic and mysticism and think about who it appeals to for what different reasons and why hmm. i think that uh, that suspicion is really uh, healthy and i'm so pleased it's a bit uh, like at this late stage in the day that we that, that you have brought in that problematizing element of it because i think that's really valuable and and necessary um for sure um i guess for me i th i think of um that we that we live in this we like like we live in in the age of the death of god right like um in some senses um and so i guess the the two ways out of that were that 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 also myth and magic and mysticism would die um or that or that they wouldn't and and they haven't and i think that speaks to um 
the needs that people have and, and, and it's, it's almost cliche to say it but um, you know living in politically uncertain times as if times weren't ever politi ever politically uncertain um, there was this sense of, 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 uh, of needing something to hang on to but but I guess for me um, specifically it feels something to do with um, with embodiment with 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 a way of um, of coming back to being able to process the things that happen to us and and the things that happen to the people that we care about all and and we can extend care to all kinds of um, people and places right like it doesn't have to be about like the people in our neighborhood immediately um, so it's a way of coming back to that and and um, of moving towards the future and thinking critically about that whilst also setting intentions and practices that might lead us um, to a different future than the course that it seems that we're on now. Um, well, I'm I sort of quite confused, I think, really, about the role of magic today and in the, the near future. Um, I think a lot remains to be seen because uh, you can see it being in some ways quite cyclical. And I think it's like driven by kind of like art and fashion and, and, and whatnot. And, and also possibly something much, well, possibly things that like several stages of being more, more longer term. So I think, um, you know, it could be that people are people of all persuasions uh, and, and all polit political persuasions, perhaps, because I think it could be quite removed from that, are gravitating towards ideas to do with like magic or, or predestination or kind of like self self-realization through kind of like something mystical or whatever it might be because of having kind of um, divorced ourselves from, I guess, uh, organized religion up to a point and then doing something to, to do with coming back to um like metaphysical or or like spiritual impulses but not all the way back to what they were before so that it's kind of like the synergy of kind of you know reject rejection of religion as it was but coming back to something because uh, you know a totally a totally scientific and atheist view of the world didn't work for you either so it could be that something like that is happening in kind of like stages of shall we say like 50 years or something and the current interest in magic and mysticism and whatever else is part of that synergy or and or it could be to do with just kind of like not necessarily I, I don't superficial for want of a better word but like industry and image driven interests which i'm not saying in a particularly disparaging way but you know fashion fashion creates kind of like two different ways you're meant to look every year but anna winter says that you the way people dress actually only changes about every five years so every five years kind of like people are looking at different references and and looking at the past perhaps and so kind of like a witchy or a hippie aesthetic will continue to come in and out of fashion i believe up to a point and for you know and 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 we just had our kind of like 90s the craft moment and that kind of spill out into things that aren't to do with fashion at all and and a lot of, a lot of people probably got a lot out of it and you know there are a lot of witchy kind of like you know really influential kind of like instagram accounts and the like so i you can kind of see a, a longer and a shorter term i think a view of what could be driving an interest in magic and one of them it's kind of like on off on off on off perhaps and people get bored of it and move away or, or they retain their interest but perhaps aren't so public or they retain it because they're a convert or, or whatever it might be and then there's perhaps a slower thing which will only be proven in perhaps 20 20 years time when when we see whether or not this this sticks and whether something has 
uh, struck a chord with a much larger group of people because it has allowed them to be uh, spiritual on their own terms. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. We better hop across and do this event, which starts in two minutes. <laughs> As always, brilliant stuff from the excellent curator Madeline Dunnigan and her guests this week. Do check out full event listings on secondhome.io and see you next time. <laughs>